guys. We're now going to spend some time studying the Bible together. Uh, we do this every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we're going to spend some time studying it, understanding what the Lord has for us in the scriptures. And we're in 2 Thessalonians right now. We're calling it Stand Strong. And the major encouragement in this book of the New Testament is that we would continue to persevere, that we would stand firm in faith, um, that we wouldn't give in to temptation or the suffering that we're going through, but continue to trust Jesus. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along with us, we've put some under the chair, so you could grab one of those black Bibles you'll see under the chair and turn to page 989. It's right around 989, 990. We're finishing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we're at the end of chapter 2, and this week we're calling it Stand by Grace. There's going to be one major admonition in the middle of our section that says stand firm, right? Stand firm, hold on to what I've taught you. Paul is going to say to them, and that's going to be sandwiched in a lot of details of what does it mean that we have God's grace in our life, that God loves us, that God helps us, that God strengthens us, that he, that he likes us. Um, as I was thinking about this, this call to, to stand, I was remembering playing sports in high school. Um, often in high school sports, you had to persevere, right? You have to keep going when you don't feel like it. Um, I played at a big high school football and ran track. Um, I was by no means a good athlete, just to kind of clarify, set the stage here. Um, I was one of those very mediocre athletes that tried really hard, okay? So that's the main thing I had going for me. I tried really hard. And I had a lot of great coaches, but I wanted to tell the story of two different ways that two different coaches attempted to motivate me, right? So if you're a mediocre athlete, you'll have a coach come alongside and try to get more out of you, right? I had one coach, uh, one of my football coaches, position coach, he was new my junior year, and the way that he motivated me, or tried to motivate me, was by getting in my face and screaming as loudly as he could. And he would tell me how terrible I was and how much I had blown it and how I wasn't trying. And to tell you the truth, that wasn't really motivating for me as a 16-year-old boy, okay? That didn't really have the effect that he hoped that it would have. I had another coach, I remember specifically this one track meet, where one of the main runners on the mile relay team, which is like, uh, four runners that pass the baton, each runs one lap around the track. Um, I was like the backup, right? Because I wasn't that fast. Uh, so I was the backup on the mile relay team, and one of our main runners went down. He was injured, and so the coach needed me to run. The way he motivated me was he said, hey, McMurray, I know you're not that fast, <laughs> but I know, you're just, I know you'll spill your guts out there, right? I know you will give it everything you got. I believe in you. You can do this. Give us the best time you've ever given us. We, we need you, right? That was a different kind of motivation. And for me, that just, that just pulled out my best performance. And I know it's a bit of a stretch, but what I want to say is here, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you are going to face terrible things, but God shows grace to you. And I might even say it this way, God believes in you. God believes in you. You can do it. Now, we want to add, you know, theological nerds out there, we want to add some caveats, right? We're sinners, so God doesn't believe in us apart from his grace, but God believes us in us in the sense that he comes and he gives us the grace that we need. He saves us, he frees us from the power of sin and death, he goes with us, he empowers us, he will help us get across that finish line, right? And so we have this, this thing here where Paul says, you got to stand, you got to hold on. Last week, if you were here, we saw a lot of predictions of a future that was going to be dark and scary, bad things happening. Paul talked about widespread disobedience, people believing lies, falling away from the truth, following false saviors. And Paul's going to say here, 
But I know there are better things in your life because of God's grace at work. So, so you can stand. You can do this. So let's hear the word from 2 Thessalonians. We'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Again, it's a context of, of bad things will happen. Many will fall away from the faith. And then Paul says in verse 13, I'm on the wrong page here. Here we go. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the, the main challenge is in verse 15, right in the middle. He says, stand firm, stand firm, hold on to what I've taught you. And then all around that, he's got the sandwich of God's grace is at work in your life. You can do this. God is going to go with you. I want to call your attention before we pray for the text to a cross-reference that I mentioned last week, and that's in Matthew 24. Jesus also says some similar things. Jesus says the end is going to be hard. The end is going to be difficult. He says this specifically in Matthew 24, 24. Jesus says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, the implication of that is, but it's not possible right? God's got a hold on you. You will not be led astray. It's going to be so bad, you're going to feel like maybe everybody's going to be led astray. But Jesus says, no, God's going to hold on to you. Paul, in our text today, says, God's going to hold on to you. Stand firm. Stand strong. Keep going. Don't, don't give up. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this text. God, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that, that you would empower us through it. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to hear what you're saying. Lord, I pray for those here that are just asking questions that are wondering if, if you are someone they can trust. I pray that you would give them the gift of open-mindedness, that you would open their mind to the possibilities of who you are, what you've said about the world, about us, about what you want to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two big forms of grace, kind of categories that I want to give. We're, we're going to be kind of looking at this as a two-point sermon, right? This main challenge in the middle that he says, stand, keep going, hold on. And sandwiched around that, he gives just a lot of different details of what God's grace looks like in our life. And the first one we're going to say is we should stand because God likes us, right? God likes us. That's motivation for us. I'm purposefully using the word like instead of love because it's different, right? We always hear that God loves us. I think we're tempted to think, well, I know God's forgiven me so that he can then tolerate me for eternity, right? No, God really likes you. He set his affection on you. And then the second part of the sandwich we'll see is that God actually helps us. He's going to help you get across the finish line. He's going to help you do what he calls you to do. So the first one is God likes us. Stand because God likes you. Stand because God likes you. Verse 13, again, remember context. Verse 13 comes after verses 11 and 12 where he says there's going to be a lot of delusion and lies and people falling away from the faith. And then in verse 13 he says, but we ought to give thanks for you. Paul's saying, I'm giving thanks for you, though, because you're not going to be like that. You're going to stand strong. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. 
considers him family. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, right? So he starts off with that love thing. You're loved. God likes you. Beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So this is just like a long laundry list of all um, the effects of God's grace in our life. He's talking about them being the first fruits to be saved. That's a beautiful picture, right? Paul's saying, as we came through Europe, Greece, Macedonia, as we came through this area, y'all were the first to believe, the first to be saved. Paul's excited about that. He's saying, God is at work in you, and he's just getting started. There will be more. Now, how does that translate to us, right? We're not the first ones in Macedonia to be saved. That happened 2,000 years ago. But the same idea is, is in effect, right? God is at work in you, and you know what? He's just getting started. Other people are going to see and hear and trust in his grace. So God is at work in your life. God's going to be at work in other people's lives. So he's saying, remember God's affection and his love for you, those of you that are beloved. And then we have this kind of weird phrase here, chosen. God has chosen you. What does that mean? Um, The word is often translated election. Um, And this relates to a doctrine that we call predestination. So those are kind of the big technical terms, election and predestination. Those are hard words that Christians often disagree about. So what I want you to see here uh, is that Paul is not actually giving us the explanation that helps the Christians that have been fighting over that for 2,000 years to solve their problem. What is Paul doing here? He's comforting you with this doctrine, right? So what I want you to do is I want you to kind of set aside your disagreements with it, recognize that as American people, for one thing, it's a little hard for our brains to wrap around the idea of God choosing us or God predetermining things, right? That's, that's hard to make sense of. And I want to say, man, I've been studying theology for 25 years, and I don't know that I fully have my brain wrapped around that, right? What I see in the text is, yeah, you can try to understand that. You can learn more about it. I encourage you to learn more about it. But here he's saying we're being comforted by it. God is in control. He chose you. He's at work in your life. It's a it's a comfort, right? We're enlightenment thinkers, right? We're very logical and rational people. That's just where we live in the history of, of the world, right? Enlightenment, rational thinkers. We're Americans, which means we, we like to determine our lives, right? We like to tell ourselves what we get to do and nobody else gets to tell us what to do. So just recognize you have all these things kind of under the surface in your heart and in your brain that makes God's sovereignty, his choosing, his predetermining things, that's like scary and weird, okay? And I understand that. Again, I encourage you to study more. I encourage you to read philosophy, read more of the scriptures about it. But what is he trying to do here? He's trying to say, hey, God likes you. He's holding on to you. You're going to be okay. That, that's what he's saying here. He goes on and gives other ways of saying it, right? Context explains scripture, explains scripture. As he explains further, he says that this looks like sanctification by the Spirit. That word sanctify is a word that's also of the same root as saint. So in the Bible, a saint is a set-apart one. Um, Through tradition over the last 2,000 years in in the church, tradition has come to mean like a really special super-Christian, right? That's how we often use the word saint. But in the Bible, it just means a believer. It just means someone who is set apart for God's purposes. And so sanctification is the process by which God is setting you apart. He's taking you and and shaping you for his purpose. The spirit is at work in your life. The other word that, that comes from the same root is holy, right? God is making you holy. Now, when you believe the truth, right, the next little phrase is, this happens through believing the truth. It happens through faith in the gospel. The next phrase, 
After that is verse, uh, where is it? Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel, right? So there's this gospel, this message of good news. It was proclaimed. And he says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about this whole process of salvation. It starts with you believing, right? If you're not sure, man, am I chosen? Am I predestined? What, what does all this stuff mean? Here's the question. Do you, do you believe the truth? Do you believe the truth? That's what he's asking. The truth of what? The truth of the gospel. He calls people through the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came after you, that he died on the cross for your sins. Do you believe this good news that the God of the universe didn't want to just leave you in death and sin and separation, but he came after you and Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live? He died a sacrificial death, right? All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to one who would be the permanent, perfect sacrifice, and that was Jesus himself. So he took your sins upon himself on the cross. He died, but he didn't stay in the grave, but he, he rose from the dead, and his resurrection certified, proved, showed that he is both the one who did defeat sin and death forever, and he's also the king of the universe, so you can trust him, right? Like, not only does he like you, but he's capable of actually saving you. So it says in Zephaniah 3.17, he's a mighty warrior who can save, and you know what? He sings over you. He quiets you. He loves you. He delights in you. So we have the Savior, it's telling us here, who likes you. So all of that gives color, right, to this idea of, of choosing, which again, I, I know that's a, that's a hard idea for a lot of us. A lot of you are like, yeah, what's the big deal? He chose me. Great. Um, some of you are like, oh, that, that freaks me out. That causes problems for me philosophically. I want to help you to see how this concept is used in other places in the scripture. Romans 9 is a big famous passage that talks about God choosing people for salvation. In Romans 9, Paul is trying to prove that it's not just the religious people that God saves, but he also saves the non-religious people. Because God has always been about